Thank you, Jessica Moss. Appreciate that. Well, good morning. Good morning. Today's the first of the month, and on our first of the month Sundays, we do things a little different. That's when we share our time together in fellowship at the Lord's table, and so we will participate in Holy Communion this morning. And then also on these Sundays, we do a little series on the Psalms that I've entitled God Tunes because the Psalms are basically the tunes that God gave the, the ancient saints to uh, inspire them to praise and adore him. And countless modern day hymns and songs and praise songs have come from the Psalms. The Psalms, though, when we do Psalms or we preach Psalms or we study Psalms, we just read them. But these words were put to music. We don't know exactly what the tune was that they were put to music, but these were put to music. This morning we are in Psalm 8, and Eric's already read a portion of that. I don't know if you chose that out of the bulletin, if you cheated and looked at the text, or you came with that psalm. So uh, I guess the Lord wants to open us up in our time of worship with that psalm, and also dedicate our hearts to these words. Psalm 8 is a psalm that David wrote and sang. And what it does is it really considers the majesty of God. And then in the middle of considering the majesty of God, David asks the question, Who am I when I consider the vastness of the universe and the expanse? It's unending. It's incomprehensible. God is incredible and majestic. And then... All of a sudden, his mind transitions into, who am I? Last week, for our time of praise, we sang the song, Who Am I? I think by Casting Crowns. And it may have been taken from this psalm. Certainly, some of it is. And he says, Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt? That's a good question. As big and majestic as God is. So that's where the psalm will take us this morning. And we're going to look at the majesty of God and then man's place. What is man's significance in light of God's majesty? So that's where we're headed this morning. Let's read Psalm 8. Nine verses. Psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the psalmist wants to know this man of God. He wants to know, in a sense, his place in the earth. What is my place 
What is my significance? And so the psalm begins by celebrating the majesty of God, then ponders man's place, and then it ends again. Oh God, oh God, you are majestic above all the earth. What's the, con- what's the connection? How does his thought process move to adoring God and all of a sudden considering himself? Well, it's a, it's a crucial connection that in order for us to know who we are, we first have to know who God is. We first have to understand the majesty of God because our place is wrapped up in his significance. We can't find our true self or our purpose, our place, our meaning without first understanding who God is. I like what John Calvin said in his Institutes. He says, man never attains to a true self-knowledge. Until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. The knowledge of ourselves is wrapped up in relationship with who God is. That's what scripture teaches us. It kind of reminds me of, uh, say, a picture in the in the local gym where a, a teenager he's trying out for the football team and he's been pumping a lot of iron and he's. And he is standing in front of the mirror and he's looking at his image at the gym and he's flexing a a few muscles and he is noticing the growth. He's getting stronger. He's feeling big. You know, at that moment, he's feeling accomplished and and big and he's feeling like I'm a presence. And then a few seconds later, another figure appears in the same mirror looking at his image um, and also begins to flex his muscles and he's a bodybuilder and he's got muscle upon muscle in his neck and his chest and his arms. And so the boy kind of sees that and isn't so big after all accomplished getting there probably will make the football team this year. But in comparison, in relation see, we, we need things to compare ourselves to. Lest we think too highly of ourselves or lest we think too lowly of ourselves. The scripture says or concludes when we're thinking about God and his majesty, who compares to you? It's rhetorical. Obviously, nothing, no one can compare to the majesty and the glory of God. But man, we need to know our place. We find our place by considering his glory. And this is what. The psalmist is doing. Who am I? Why would you even consider me at all? As capable and as wise and as powerful as you are. It's a good question. It's a question that I think most of us at one time or another in our lives kind of kick it around. Who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? Am I worth anything or not? And if I am worth something, what is it? What am I supposed to do with my life? Very, very important, good, valid question. Who am I in the big scope of things? The scripture says that humanity is responsible to God, our creator. So we are here to bring God glory, to take joy in God, to delight in knowing him and delight in living our lives, breathing our breath. For him. 
A lot of times our problems, not all the time, but a lot of times our problems in life come because we lose sight of who God is. We spend all our time figuring out who we are, trying to figure out what am I supposed to be doing with my life? We get caught up in that and problems come because we have lost sight of the majesty and the glory of God. But if you lose sight of the majesty and the glory of God, then we lose sight of our true humanity. And it causes problems. And so the psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And so apparently he's he's um, enthralled and enjoying and infatuated with the, the majesty of the galaxies and the luminaries, the stars. I mean, you know, we live in the country. You look into the sky at night on a clear night and it is fascinating. And if you lay there long enough and stare at it, you might even see a shooting star. It is incredible. And we are continuing to discover more and more of the vastness. There's no end to it of God's creation. And as huge as that is, he realizes that God is even bigger than that. Even the heavens and all that we see with the naked eye cannot contain the glory of God. David's son Solomon was given the task of all things to build the temple of God. Can, can you imagine being given the task? God says, I'm going to dwell with you on earth and I want you to build my house, my temple. Now, fortunately, he also gave the plans for that because that would be a daunting task. Did I put this in the right place? How do we bring God the most glory? So Solomon got to do that. And it was interesting when when he thinks about this glorious and it was a, it was a man made spectacle. It was wonderful for that day and age. Lots of expensive products, top notch craftsmanship. The craftsmanship actually was also inspired by God. God gifted the the contractors. And Solomon, it's opening ceremonies. The ribbon is cut. Now we get to use it. We get to bring our sacrifices. We get to sing our songs in this new temple and in his prayer. He says the heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. He gets it. I mean, by God's will, this is how he dwells with us, but it doesn't really contain him. It doesn't do him any justice. And the idea is that even the expanse of the galaxies, even the beauty of all creation that we see, and it is wonderful, it's glorious. I just even was kind of looking at this teeny little display of beauty, if you can see it through the pulpit here this morning. I mean, God... It is so creative and look at the contrast of colors and textures and you can just put a few things together and make such a beautiful thing. And yet even all of this, perhaps you've traveled the world, perhaps you've seen the seven wonders of the world, both ancient and modern. All of this is just a a glimpse just a glimpse that God has revealed of his true nature and glory. It's not the whole thing. The whole thing cannot be contained. Not in this world. That's how majestic God is. That's how powerful God is. And all of this reveals his wisdom and his, and his glory. 
and his justice and his power, but it's just a glimpse. It's just a partial revelation. We can go anywhere. Even go up to space, go down into the deepest waters. I mean, we're, we're still finding new species. I just read yesterday some article that 1.5 million new species of penguins were found somewhere. I thought, how could you not know that there were 1.5 millions of a new species? But we, we, you know, we think the world's so small and in a way we're so connected and it seems that way. But it's, it's bigger than we ever can imagine. We can go anywhere. We can stand at the top of the Grand Canyon and gaze at how massive and beautiful it is. And we could go overseas and look at the beautiful green rolling hills of Ireland. Anywhere in the world. And we will not find anything. We won't find a color. We won't find a shape. We won't find a texture, a taste, an aroma, a feeling, or a new discovery that even comes close to the grandeur of God. Because all it is is a partial revelation of of his excellence. And guess who gets the privilege and the responsibility of sharing this with one another? Mankind. We get the privilege and the responsibility of acknowledging him, praising him, and making him known to the world. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength become of your because of your foes. That's not just hype and rhetoric. In real life, even infants and babies are a part of God's plan for majestic glory. We know this from Matthew. Jesus, the very Son of God, quotes this scripture in a real life happening, something that, that happened in his everyday ministry. Matthew 21, 15 to 16, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. Now, I know that the scribes were challenging him and that that song is reserved for a certain Messiah that God promised. And you're letting them sing that to, to you. I understand that. But look how Jesus uses this. This is incredible. He's saying in God's plan, those little children, those little pesky children that sometimes we want to whisk out of the way. Let them come. Because that little voice is important to God. Their perception, their innocence, their excitement as they hold hands and skip through the temple singing things because they pick songs up just like this, right? It's all part of God's plan for them to praise. I know if you're little here this morning and, you know, we stand and we sing our praise songs and you're probably surrounded by adults and louder voices and you might think nobody can hear my little voice. These grown-ups overpower me. God hears your little voice. Now, how many times do we take delight when our young ones come up here and do an offering or some special song? I mean, our hearts are just like brimming over with joy. It's so cute and adorable. And then you add to the fact that those cute and adorable creatures are singing praise to God and it's just over the top. And I love it. 
And that's why somebody here is going to start a children's choir. I love it, but God loves it more. This whole majesty thing, this whole praise thing, what isn't God's plan is for that praise to be stifled. That's what the scribes did, and Jesus called them out on it. And in this verse, and in Jesus' verse, their foes, their enemies, the enemies of God stifle his glory, stifle his majesty, try to control it and manipulate it for their own purposes. God doesn't appreciate that. God is great. His salvation is great. His power is great. His wisdom is great. His justice is great. And his judgment is great. And there's judgment pronounced here. Woe to his enemies, those that would stifle the praise. He deserves it's been several weeks now, but unfortunately, you'll remember on the, the Sunday that we, first time it ever happened in all of our 30-plus uh, years, had to cancel a church service because we had no water. And um, we did home church that Sunday, and it was uh, Lisa and I and Abby and M. M joined us that Sunday, and for our church, we listened to R.C. Sproul's very last sermon he ever preached. And it was taken out of uh, Hebrews chapter 2. And it was called, This Great Salvation. And here's the text. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape? If we neglect such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The author of Hebrews is saying. Remember what happened to rebellious Israel. God gave his word through his servant Moses and they disobeyed it and everything that God said would happen to them. They were chastised and their enemies pestered them and they were constantly hassled and harassed. And then it got worse and worse and worse and famine struck sometimes, pestilence and disease and eventually exile. They were taken out of their homes, their yards, their gardens were no longer theirs and they had to live in a foreign land. God did everything he said he was going to do and that's just based on the words of Moses. And here comes the son of God and he is speaking as God. And not only is he speaking this message as God, but every after everything he says, there's miracle after miracle, demonstration of power after demonstration of power. And if you think it was bad for those that heard what Moses had to say, can you imagine how terrifying it will be when people hear the son of God and see his power and neglect his greatness? It's a stern warning for believer and unbeliever alike. We're here to exalt God. We're here to edify the saints through the word of God. We're here to evangelize the lost because people need these kind of warnings. We need these kind of warnings because we have a great salvation and a great salvation 
demands a great life of worship. How could it not? We don't always have a great life of worship. Because we neglect to gaze at the face of God. We neglect to use our mental powers to, to give thought to Him, to ponder Him, to get to know Him, to learn about Him, and to apply that to our lives. We, we neglect God-given opportunities and resources this church has and this community has and God's people have. We choose to think about other things. Now, we don't completely forsake Him because that would make us look too bad and that's just too harsh. It's the soft choices. It's the soft choices of neglect. That sermon that he preached, boy, was I convicted of neglect. Not forsaking, but just seemingly innocent neglect. Soft choices. And what happens? It's barely noticeable. And then all, all of a sudden, we don't have such a great Christian life, or we don't have such a great Church, or we don't have such a great Bible study or such a great community group. So if we neglect these experiences, if we, we, we let things slip, opportunities, because the greatness of God has slipped in our thinking. Maybe he doesn't deserve this. He's not so great to us. And if we neglect God, we will not have a high view of God that the Scripture gives to people because we lose sight of His majesty. A.W. Tozer, a great theologian, said that when you have a high view of God, you are spared countless hardships. What does he mean by that? When God is, is kept aloft in our minds and our thinking, and we apply it to all life, things that happen to us every day. You know the grind of life. And you take lofty thinking of God. It just changes the way we look at everything that happens to us and in this whole world. It changes so that when, when bad happens to us, we're not struck down. We're, we're not lifeless. We're not hopeless. When trials come, it doesn't send us scurrying for ways to save ourselves, self-preservation, or keep us up at night. Walking around with knots in our stomach as a normal part of life. God changes that. The majesty of God changes that because we understand who He is and what He's about and what He's, he's using these trials for in our lives, but to bring us into His sweetness. To reveal more of himself because you can't see this about God over here in this soft life. You got to come over here in this hard life sometimes to see God at this angle. But when you see him at that angle, you just cured things that you've been carrying around for months or years. The majesty of God is an incredible thing. We don't look for ways out. We can handle it. And the opposite is true. When we have a low view of God, what happens? Well, man, anything can happen and we just lost all hope. Any little thing comes our way and we're scurrying around for a substitute God to fill the need we have. Little idols are just kicking up everywhere. He says a, a, a low view of God is the seedbed for idolatry. 
the, a low view of God is a seabed for idolatry. It causes us to turn to other things and grow idols in our heart. We fret, we fear, we chase after long, uh, wrong loves, we self-indulge, we, we stress out, uh, we, we flirt with sins, we engage in sins, we become in bondage to sins because we can't imagine at this point in our life that God is great enough to help us out. We can't imagine our hearts are so sinful or we're so enslaved or we love these things so much that God is not great enough to transform my feelings, my affections and the way I think. He's not big enough to do this. I've created too big of a mess. I'm too bad. I'm too sinful. I'm hopeless. It's a low view of God and then we're stuck. It just welcomes the... Welcome, Matt, for anxiety and all of the things that Christ came to free us from. In his grace and mercy, God is so great that he can take the sourest, bitterest, meanest, most hateful heart and turn it into a fountain of peace and joy. A pleasant person to be around. Perhaps he's done that in you. Let's not neglect the majesty of God. Let's consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good works. Let us not fail to meet together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. That's the author of Hebrews in chapter 10. That's the community of those that would have a high view of God. We would encourage one another with that and bring that into each other's lives because it's true. It's a reality. We have an opportunity to do that today. We're doing this today as we worship, as we come in obedience and partake of the Lord's Supper. As we share our hearts and our praises and our prayer requests with one another. It's for the majesty of God, for the glory of God to exalt God. And then second, the significance of man. You know why we can't afford to neglect God's glory? Because our glory and our significance is wrapped up in it. We can't neglect to honor God for who he is because our very honor is wrapped up in who God is. In verse five, he has crowned us with glory and honor, bound together by the dynamic created order of existence. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor, given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. You ever feel like an insignificant speck? I mean, we can do amazing things today. We have just amazing technology. Now, sometimes it amazes me that in our amazing technology, things just simple things just don't work. You get glitches in your computer and your phone like what? That text was sent 10 days ago. Why am I just getting it now? But we can do amazing things. I mean, we, we can track storms. The other side of the world. 
We can track the movement of armies. And then you have little man, and in comparison, the weight measures and volume, who are we? What's one person? And we can't find a little boat load of people that are lost at sea. We can't find that little guy who went on a camping trip in the mountains and, and, and he strayed a little too far and he got lost. And he's just one person. There's a sense in, in which, you know, we are weak and vulnerable in this world. Comparatively, little, little old me. Will anybody even notice if I stop coming to church? If I stop coming to work, am I on anybody's mind? How hard will somebody search to try to rescue me or to help me out of my lostness? And we feel like that, and yet Scripture says, you know what, you little speck in this vastness of creation? I crowned you with my glory. In other words, you stand out. In all of this. You are the the crown of all of this. Because you were created uniquely in my image. So you're the biggest standout of all of it. That's what scripture teaches us. A beautiful truth. And you have powers to rule. Not that God's, you know, can't handle it. But he shares his dominion with us. So we get to participate in that and have fun with that. Exercising our God-given rights and powers over it. Appointed us. And we're just a little lower than angels. I like the way he puts that because uh, we are unique. See, angels don't have bodies. They don't have the flesh that we have. And beasts, well, all they have is flesh, not spirits and souls and minds. And so here we are, humanity... A body and a spirit. Just a little lower than the angels. Always looking up into the heavens. Hopefully not looking down. Because when we look down and we just think of fleshly things, then we become more like beasts. But when you look up into the heavens, into spiritual things, you attain to become more like God. The psalmist is wrestling with something that is absolutely very important to our day and age and our culture. Identity. Who are we anymore? Who are we? We don't even know. We don't know what we're supposed to be doing with our lives. We're born into this world scratching our heads based on all the different options of culture, all the different teachings. This is very, very crucial. It's been crucial, but it continues to be more and more important for our day and age. I have to find my true self. You ever hear anybody say that? My true self. How do I find it? Different religions will point you in different directions. We just can't find it, I think, because we we took our eyes off God. But you already know that. And we're stuck. I I got to find my true self. I have to learn to love myself for who I really am. How are you going to figure out who you really are? So that you can love your true self. So there's different pushes in different ages. We've got to find our true self because we're convinced that's what's going to bring us happiness. And it will, by the way. When you find out your true significance and your meaning and your purpose and your creator. A, a happiness, that shalom will, will fill your heart. 
But if you go looking in the wrong direction, not so much. And we don't want to just find our true self, but we want to find our true self as being very valuable and very worthwhile, don't we? We don't want to come to the end of find of our, our true self and we're, and we're just a speck of nothingness. Although that's what our culture teaches us. You're just an accident. You're just an accident. Freak of nature. In the evolutionary chain. Just the way things turn out as far as it goes. In the 60s, it was a big thing. And I wasn't thinking about who am I. I was thinking about Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner because I was just a kid. But it was it was a big push. Who, who am I? And then the new age came in and people started looking deep into their souls. And the real new age or uh, Eastern teaching, of course, is you lose yourself in in, in the um, pantheism. Everything is God. You lose yourself and you become one with that force. But the new age is swept into our culture was you, you look into your heart and your soul to try to find your true self because I'm sick and tired of society trying to identify me and define me and all these social constructs and government and politics and this family thing. I'm done with family. Who am I really? You guys are trying to impose this on me and religion and stuff. I got to free myself from that so I can look into my own heart and find out who I really am and what I'm supposed to be. And drugs are helpful to help me find that too. A few trips... That'll that'll help a few parties. So we had to get in touch with our true self. So I know that I'm the real me. But that was uh, tricky. It doesn't really work because go ahead and look into your heart. What are you going to find? You're going to find conflicted desires, conflicting goals, conflicting wishes, conflicting ideas of who you really would want to be or who you want to find yourself as. Because that's just... Our nature. We don't always know. We change our minds a lot and we're very fickle. You're a kid and you change your mind a dozen times of what you're going to be when you grow up. We see ourselves in different light. We can't trust ourselves. It doesn't work because we can't trust ourselves to conclude without outside help who we really are. Our minds. Things shift and change. That's why it's so sad to... To read today that the highest, very high percentage of those that have had sex changes because they feel entrapped in a body that is not their own. And in order to find my true self and who I'm sure I am, I need to change my gender. So I'm going to do that and it's going to break me out of prison and finally I can be my true self and be free. And the high percentage of the people that do that find themselves right back in prison because they said, I made a mistake. It did not free me. Who is my true self? Now, this is gut-wrenching stuff. We don't know what we want. We want to be a family man. I want to be a family man. I want to be home every night to put my kids to bed, to kiss their forehead and tell them a story. But, man, I want to be successful, too. And if I'm not at work, other guys are working hard. They're getting ahead and the boss sees them. I want to be that, too. You got to make a choice. You got to land. Where are you going to make what what rules or boundaries are you going to make the choice about what you should and how you should live your life? What are you going to use? What outside resource? Your own thinking? 
drive ourselves crazy. So, Timothy Keller says, um, it's like putting your foot on the brake and the gas pedal at the same time. I've done that. You know, you're learning to drive. You're scared to go too fast, so you got the foot on the brake. They teach you to drive with one foot now. By the way, that, that, that wasn't how it came when I was growing up. You could use whatever foot you wanted for whatever, but it does make more sense uh, to drive with one foot so that you don't do this. But our feelings aren't reliable. We need an outside source. And then in the 70s and 80s, we said, ah, no, that doesn't work to look in. That's just nothing but a big frustration. I want to look out and see who's worthwhile, and then I want to be that. Who's valuable? What, what kind of person is honored and respected? And so then we became very materialistic, and you have Madonna's material girl. So, because if I can attain to this and walk in this social circles or have that kind of money, if I can have that kind of life, that's cool, and that's well, that will bring me what I want. I want to be that thing. And it makes us feel good about ourselves. And then, along with that, came the big self-esteem kick that we are still on. Everything, the uh, whole idea of self-esteem is we want people to feel good about themselves, not bad about themselves. And so there are lots of ways now that you are promised to feel good about yourself. And you got advertisers and marketers that want to weigh in on that. So look, if you, I'm going to offer you this diet because if you lose weight, you will have a positive self-esteem. And... I'm going to show you how to get rich quick because if you have money, people will just gawk at you and you will have wonderful self-esteem or you can become a celebrity and have fans. It will boost your self-esteem. You can work, walk around certain social circles. You've always wanted that. It will build your self-esteem. You'll find who you're really meant to be and you're set for life. Now, statistically, as you know, it's true that there are certain things that we can do uh, that will boost our self-esteem. It'll make us feel bad. If you're a healthy person, if if you're at your ideal weight, you're fit, you know, if you're taking care of yourself financially, yeah, you, you, you get a good feeling. Statistically, that's true. The problem is, what it really does in the end is it puts you on a little gerbil wheel that you can't get off because you're seeking after things. You don't know why it makes you feel good. All you know is that I just have to keep this up in order to keep feeling good. There's nothing behind it. Why does it even work? And trying, next thing you know, we were trying to find our true selves, but really we're just trying to be like somebody else. And we just sold our soul. We just forfeited whoever we really were to try to be something that just made us feel good. The bottom line is this, and there's other there's other philosophies, but the bottom line is this. We cannot validate ourselves. We need outside authorities. We need God. We need God to place value on us. We can't do it ourselves. Our nature, it's just not in us. We're fallen. We're mixed up. We're confused. If we are just accidents, do you know what self-esteem with nothing behind it, with no reason is? It's just all of us lying to each other. How can I validate? If I'm just a piece of junk that happened in the universe as a cosmic mistake, 
can I just all of a sudden decide I'm awesome? I can I be my own authority to decide how valuable I am? Can you be the authority to decide how valuable I am or how worthless? We're not doing so well at that today, are we, in our culture, culture of death? We are placing value on humanity according to different things, according to pragmatism, according to worth, to worthness. Instead of according to the fact that your dignity comes upon your head because God put it there, period. Not because of how successful you are or how accomplished you are, but because God bestowed it upon you and it's yours. Nobody can take it from you, that dignity. We don't do such a good job at that. That's why some people never even make it out of mom's womb. Because they've already, before they had a chance to do anything, they've already been valued, or I should say devalued, by people who know better. Down syndrome. Babies. You don't see many anymore, do you? Hats off to Gerber. By the way, I don't know if you noticed it. Baby of the year, Gerber baby of the year. You, le you left tears up here from Sunday school because you got choked up. Gerber baby of the year, Down syndrome baby, one year old. We cannot validate our Selves. Look, you're either an accident or you're a work of art. You're a precious work of art. And Scripture says, here's reality, here's truth. You find yourself in the majesty of God. And you're a work of art. And guess what? Your little voice does matter. Little squeak, a skip. Your joy, your rejoicing, it does matter. And you know what, you little speck? You're on God's mind. I don't know what other people think about you. But I know what God thinks about you. And he sent his son into this world to seek you and find you out so that you can find your true self in Christ. Back in the fellowship with your creator so that the peace of heaven can come down on earth and, and just cover your heart, your worn, weak frailty with the very glory of God, your creator. And just connect the pieces where everything doesn't always feel good. Life isn't a feel good thing all the time. We do have hardships. But guess what? Scripture teaches us in the end is beautiful. It's beautiful. Talked about that this morning in Sunday school. Keller says, the more majestic he is in your mind, the greater he is. The more of his royal presence is in your life. The more you will understand your own glory and honor and how he is mindful of you. We're here to exalt God. We're here to edify the saints and we're here to evangelize the lost. Maybe someone who doesn't know their identity in Christ is here this morning. I pray that you would make your peace with your creator. 
If you're not sure how to do that, I'd be glad to explain that to you sometime after our service. But right now, we are in the process of hopefully living great lives for a great God. May God bless the preaching of His Word. We're going to have an opportunity to exalt Him in praise and fellowship around the Lord's table.